and welcome to Golf Lovers United, where we discuss golf the fair way. My name is Mark at Golf Dad UK, and here's wishing you a very, very happy new year. And what a year it is shaping up to be for the world of men's professional golf. And you might remember if you're a, if you're a listener to the show, if you're a constant fan of the show, that we promised a pro golf critic deep dive. We wanted to put it out on the 22nd, but unfortunately, Jay was unwell. So we've got that landing today. I'm going to hand over to Jay in just one second for a deep dive opinion piece on the explosive future of the men's professional game. It's sure to well, it's sure to be an interesting deep dive into the business, into the ideologies, into the future, into the past, into the legacy of the men's pro game. And I've got absolutely no doubt that he's going to, he's going to go deep and he's going to, well, he's going to cause a few opinions to surface on Twitter over in the YouTube comments. And speaking of which, if you enjoy the show, you can either enjoy it over on YouTube or you can listen at glugc.com or in your podcast app of choice. Now, before I hand over to Jay, I just need to give a shout out to Padmini, who is our first brand ambassador of 2024. Thank you so much for joining the GLU Brand Ambassador Squad. If you want to get involved in the fan zone yourself, or if you think someone else might enjoy it, you can check it out at glugc.com forward slash support. Enjoy this deep, deep dive into the explosive future of men's professional golf with our pro golf critic himself. It is, of course, Jay. Greetings. This is Jay. This is pro golf critic uh, of Golf Lovers United. Um, we've got a little bit of a special episode today. Uh, this is me flying solo. Uh, the, uh, parents are on vacation. Um, you know, I've got the whole front of the house, front of the studio. Um, and I think this is going to be a really interesting, um, episode. It might be great. It might be terrible. I'm not entirely sure. This is the first time, um, I've ever done anything like this. Uh, flying solo uh, without a host or a co-host or anything like like that. <clears throat> However, I think there's some really important things that I kind of want to get across. Um, and I feel like this is really the only way for me to do that. So, you know, a couple of things. One, um, I think it's a little bit, um, I think there's been a little bit of confusion out there in terms of why we started this podcast, why I wanted to be part of it. Uh, to me, the primary reason is one, um, I feel like during the last uh, couple of years, you know, I've really, I've had a, a voice in sort of this uh, PJ tour live saga that you know, obviously is going to keep going for a little while. The merger deadline got extended by another few months. It is what it is. Um, you know, uh, one of the things that I have noticed is the fact that um, I have been privy to a lot of information during the last couple of years. And I just feel like, again, it goes back to the golf media not really fully uh, covering this and sort of analyzing this um, at a certain aptitude that I would expect. Um, and look, we've already gone over all the reasons why. Uh, why that is the case. We can talk about the corrupt golf media, which we will um, at a later date. Um, except this particular podcast is really going to be me sort of giving you guys a brain dump. I have uh, written, obviously, a ton of articles in the past, and we'll uh, continue to do that. 
Um, I also realize that some of our audience, not really readers, so you're not going to necessarily read my stuff, which is totally fine. Uh, this is going to be another way to sort of convey some of the uh, some of the points that that I kind of want to get across. So, you know, this particular podcast really comes down to two things that I kind of want to break down. That uh, for some reason, uh, look, I consume a lot of golf content. I read voraciously when it comes to um, anything related to professional golf, all that stuff. Um, and I've just felt like this information has not really been out there. So there's, there's really two things that I want to kind of get across in this uh, uh, particular podcast. And I'm going to try to take it slow. Um, I have a reputation for talking very, very fast. I'm going to try to slow it down a little bit. I'm going to try to maybe double down and sort of double click on some of the things that I, that I talk about just to sort of lean into it a little bit more so that everybody's able to understand it a little more than uh, you would normally if I uh, sort of breeze through it. <clears throat> so there's really two things that I want to talk about. One uh, pertains to this merger between the PJ Tour, the DP World Tour, and Live Golf. Uh, a lot of people are calling it NUCO. A lot of people, well, really only me, are calling it Umbrella Organization because it is this umbrella that's sort of hovering over all of these assets that exist between Live, the PJ Tour, um, and the European Tour slash DP World Tour. Um, and look, I have done a lot of an analysis of this. I've talked to folks in the private equity world. I've sort of I'm coupling that with all the information that I have about professional golf. I'm also combining that with my personal knowledge of the economics of sport, economics of business, sort of how these things generally work. Um, and, and look, I'm certainly not uh, not an expert on sort of mergers and acquisitions, although I have been a part of sort of many at this point in my career. So I have a general idea of how these things go. Um, I have also uh, sought the sort of counsel and sort of information from a lot of folks uh, that have uh, participated in those uh, particular conversations, those particular mergers and ac um, acquisitions and such. Um, and I do think that, you know, sort of combining everything together, um, I sort of have a unique perspective on this uh, that I think can kind of give everybody a little more of a feeling of uh, how this is going to play out. Look, I got to give a disclaimer. This might be completely wrong, it, <laughs> but I do think that with all the knowledge and sort of information that I've gathered over the last two years, um, in addition to all of the information that I've gathered more recently when it comes to the merger specifically, um, and just sort of how, again, the economics of sport, professional sport works. I, th I think I'm, I think I'm to something um, and a lot of the feedback that I've gotten from people around the industry is that this is like kind of where things are going to go. So, uh, look, there's a lot of ways this can go in the next few months. Um, except I think this is really intended to be food for thought for everyone. So first off, I want to go a little bit, uh, talk a little about me. Um, you know, obviously a lot of people have been following me now for, a fair amount of time, uh, you know, where I went to college, you know, where I'm from. I don't really have to go into any of that stuff. 
the thing that's sort of more relevant to this particular conversation is sort of um, obviously I'm super passionate about professional golf. I've gone and uh, talked about that um, ad nauseum at this point. Um, you know, but uh, going all the way back to uh, being a, a kid, really going back to high school and college, you know, I've been really interested in the uh, economics of sport. Uh, there was sort of a parallel universe where, um, uh, you know, I might've been working for a, a sort of NBA team um, in their, their basketball operations uh, divisions. And look, there were conversations had sort of early on in the two thousands, but it didn't really work, work out for a variety of reasons. One, cause um, I don't believe in working for free and I wasn't going to do that. <laughs> but I, I do think that um, the thesis that I wrote in, in college definitely caught the, the attention of a few folks um, around basketball, where I talked about the net worth of college basketball players. And I talked about the economics of the NBA and sort of how things break down and and how uh, there is this sort of generally 50-50 split between the sort of ownership um, investment group and then also the uh, talent when it comes to the players that are actually um, out there that the fans come to see, the fans want to see. Um, all that is like super, super important. And it's kind of the direction that professional golf is needed to go in. Like I've, it's something that I've known for a very, very long time. It's something that um, I feel like there's always been this uh, sort of unsaid, uh, well, some, sometimes it is said, uh, tension between the, the star players and the rank and file players. Um, and it just seemed like no one really had a solution for like how uh, this was going to go moving forward. Like I felt like there were so many things that could be potentially done to, to make professional golf a lot better where the star players could realize more of their earnings potential while the rank and file players still were able to receive uh, proper compensation, fair compensation. Except, look, it's very clear that the stars are always what's driven the value in professional golf. I don't think anyone has any questions ab about that. You could read all of the different articles, um, all of the different quotes from uh, Phil Mickelson, uh, Tiger Woods, you know, going all the way back to uh, Jack Nicholas and Arnold Palmer. Um, everybody knows that stars in golf are what drives revenue. That's obviously the case. That being said, there is this, there's a very important balance because, you know, the uh, rank and file players on the PJ tour and all the other tours throughout the world, they play a very, very important role in this. Um, and I think it's something that, I feel like we're now at this particular point where we're looking at a brand new professional golf world moving forward. And I think now is the time if we were to sort of blow things up um, and sort of uh, have a brand new uh, golf ecosystem, um, how would that look? And sort of what would the breakdown be as far as, uh, you know, equity as far as value in terms of who the investors are, uh, in terms of how the actual product would look. And when I say product, I mean the actual golf tournaments, the events, um, all those, those things that sort of feed into 
uh, the professional golf world. And again, in this particular instance, because we're dealing with the merger of these three bodies, Live Golf and the PIF, who's the primary investor, the PJ Tour and everything around the PJ Tour and the European Tour slash DP World Tour. All of these things are now sort of moving under the same umbrella where I think we're going to have a really I'm still very optimistic that this is going to go uh, a particular way because, again, things are shifting to a for profit world rather than this sort of antiquated not-for-profit system that, that the PJ Tour has had for a very long time, which, I mean, let's be honest, we're just moving into a world where that's just not viable. It's not feasible anymore. It's creating more uh, problems than it should. <laughs> um, and I think, look, we, we just have to address the, these two things. So really, the first thing that we have to address is sort of the general economics of golf, the second thing is Nuco uh, slash Umbrella Corporation. How uh, is that going to look? Like, what does that even mean? What does it mean to have this sort of for-profit entity? Um, and how is, th- uh, how is this going to look going forward? So let's talk about Nuco first, um, a.k.a. Umbrella Corporation, a.k.a. PGA Tour Enterprises, whatever you want to call it. You'll know what I'm talk- talking about. So basically, the PJ Tour and its merger with Live and the PIF and the DP World Tour is basically going to be taking all of their uh, combined assets. So I'm going to sort of give you a visualization to sort of how I see this playing out. So basically, all three entities are sort of pooling in all of their assets. What do I mean by assets? So we're talking about uh, 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 certain tournaments, talk about certain events and tournaments. I mean, sort of on the PJ tour, obviously all of the legacy events, the 45 to 47 uh, PJ tour events that happen every year. We're also talking about media rights. We're talking about their TV contract where they're obviously able to broadcast this, uh, a particular product um, in the United States and also um, across the globe. Uh, we're also talking about all of the sponsorship that the PJ Tour brings to the table. That's another pretty huge asset. Um, I've heard the, the sort of assets of the the sort of media and sort of TV stuff. Uh, you know, you get a lot of numbers out, out there, but I've heard the sort of number of $5 billion through the next X amount of years, which seems about right. So you obviously have that as a, uh, those are all really, really important assets. And yeah, there, there's probably a few other things that I'm leave, leaving out like the, uh, you know, president's cup and stuff, uh, stuff like, like that. So that's sort of, they're sort of pooling all of their assets. DP world tour, similar stuff. Uh, they have a lot of events to so look, um, I don't think we should gloss over the European tour. The European tour has a very, very important legacy of great events, a legacy of great players, a legacy of uh, a tradition that, you know, has to be accounted for in all of this. And I think that it will. So again, but uh, similar stuff to the P- uh, the PGA tour, the assets look very, very similar uh, events and tournaments, 
media, uh, you know, various things, um, you know, the Ryder Cup on the uh, the European tour side is, is, you know, it's an important thing. I don't know exactly how that's going to incorporate. That could be an asset that they bring in sort of their share of the Ryder, Ryder Cup. We'll have to see. Then we sort of get into the live golf uh, PIF side and bringing their assets to the table. Now, what are the live golf assets? Obviously, look, live is a very sort of new, it's a new product. It's only really been around for a year and a half. Um, we're really in a situation where 2022 was sort of year zero. Uh, 2023 was year one of live golf. <clears throat> um, and really the biggest asset that live golf and they're bringing in a lot of the sim- similar assets. They're bringing in their events they're bringing in tournaments. They're bringing in certain meteorites. They're bringing the value of their teams. Uh, that's still on the rise, obviously. You know, their TV contract's not worth nearly as much as what the PJ Tour is. But, again, there's something very, very important when it comes to a really important asset uh, that Liv and the PIF have that the PJ Tour uh, um, and the European Tour have never had in their history. And their biggest asset is the guarantee of uh, talent, meaning you have contracted some of the biggest names in professional golf for multiple years that are guaranteed. Of course, this is barring injury, you know, all that other stuff that are guaranteed to play in a certain series of events. I cannot stress how important this is to the whole thing. Because the PJ Tour, for all of its legacy and tradition, the PJ Tour is not a league. It is not a sports league. It never has been. Every other professional sports league, they run um, in this situation where you have contracts, you have guaranteed contracts for certain players uh, that you know that they are a very important asset to you where if their teams are playing on a certain on a certain day at a certain venue you know that you're going to get those assets are going to be part of your uh your league part of your organization this has been one of the biggest gripes that I've had with the PJ Tour it's one of their biggest weaknesses that they are really just an organization of somewhat random events when you really think about it They've never had throughout their history a guarantee of any players showing up because they don't have any sort of guaranteed contracts. They have very specific rules where you can't uh, pay appearance fees, which is basically what Live Golf uh, and those guaranteed contracts are doing. You're basically structuring these sort of um, appearance fees that have occurred um, in professional golf in the past. Uh, For example, this is something that I just tweeted recently is that, you know, Tiger Woods for a long time was getting appearance fees. Like, you know, this goes back to the late 90s, early 2000s, where he was getting, uh, you know, million dollar appearance fees to play on the European tour. He was getting million dollar appearance fees to sort of play in various events throughout the world. Um, And this sort of culminated with... 
within the last 10 to 15 years, he was getting, uh, you know, a three plus million dollar appearance fees to go play in Dubai, um, which in a sort of regular sort of standard uh, PGA Tour world, Dubai has nothing to do with the PGA Tour. It's a now it's a legacy European Tour event, uh, DP World Tour event, <clears throat> where well, for the longest time, obviously, United Arab Emirates and uh, uh, the city of Dubai wanted more and more talent to sort of come and play in their event because it gave them legitimacy. It gave them credibility. It gave them more eyeballs. It gave them more uh, just sort of raised their importance and value in the sort of uh, professional golf universe, uh, which is a very, very important thing. Uh, you know, don't get me wrong. Like these appearance fees, honestly, Tiger was probably underpaid with his uh, $3 million appearance fee because look, I never really paid attention to uh, the Dubai desert classic until Tiger started playing there in the 2000s. So um, I, I had known about it, obviously, with, you know, Ernie Els playing there and sort of some of the other big name players that, that played a little bit more frequently on the, the Europe, uh, the European tour. But, you know, Tiger took that event to another level. So, <clears throat> again, these appearance fees have been around. They haven't been around for the PJ Tour. They've, you know, finagled some other ways where they've been able to funny, uh, funnel money to certain players for uh, playing in certain PJ Tour events. I know the Travelers, uh, which is in Hartford, Connecticut, is probably the best example of that. You can Google, you know, Travelers Championship appearance fees, and you'll get a bunch of articles, you know, talking about the ways that various sort of strategic ways that they uh, paid appearance fees without paying appearance fees. So, uh, again, but these are really, really important things. Like, that's one of the things that I think is really, really important to the whole uh, grand scheme of professional golf and making it as good as it can be and making pro golf as big as it can be. You've got to be able to guarantee that, like, for a certain series of events, like, every big-name player is going to be there. Um, and it's something that has never really been, you know, formalized. The only thing where you can maybe say that this happened is with, uh, with the majors that, you know, obviously they're basically taking the top 50 uh, to 100 players throughout the world. They're taking a combination of qualifiers and all that other stuff uh, where, you know, all of those players are getting together four times a year. Uh, uh, you know, basically those are the primary events where you were pretty much guaranteed to get all the top players. Now, if you go back in history and look at a lot of these PJ Tour events that like you think are like really, really big events like Riviera and, you know, looking at Bay Hill and like all these other sort of uh, important legacy events on the PJ Tour, like it was very infrequent that all of the best players throughout the world were actually playing in those uh, particular tournaments. And I always like I had a really big problem with that because it's like, the PJ tour for all of its legacy and tradition, they were never able to, uh, to guarantee all of the best players were going to be in any field. There was no way to do that. There's no way for them that there's still no way for them to do that. Uh, like they've tried to do it with these signature events last year where they said, Oh, you know, in order to be eligible for the PIP, you have to play an X amount of events. You're still 
not guaranteeing that the top players are going to play in all of those, those events. You're just not. Uh, you can threaten them with sort of fines and sanctions like they did with, with Rory when he took his mental health thing for the heritage last year. And it's like, again, it's just the PJ tour is not set up to, to do that. Now, what you could do, which is where Liv has come in and has guaranteed for the 14 events that they have, the players that they have signed to contracts, the guaranteed contracts are going to be playing in those events. I cannot stress how, how important that is to this whole, this whole ecosystem, this whole deal, being able to guarantee, you know, who's going to be playing at each one of these tour stops at each one of these live golf uh, tournaments throughout the year. Not even talking about the uh, team stuff, which I'm not really going to go into detail about, Um, except this is really, to me, is the most important part of live golf, is that they are totally changing the economics of professional golf. And and look, there's been this trade-off between being sort of an independent contractor and being a... Uh, a member of this tour where there's been a give and take. And it's like, I still think there's so many gaps in terms of where players can just randomly decide, Oh, even though this is a really big event, I don't want to play in it for a variety of reasons. I'm not contractually obligated to play in it. That needs to change. And I think that's what this merger uh, is going to result in eventually. Now, how long that takes is another story. You know, obviously, we're, we're probably looking at the merger sort of being finalized sometime in 2024. We'll have to see again. Like, look, I have been a proponent of this merger for a long time, ever since, <clears throat> you know, it was announced back in June of 2023. Now, knowing more of the things that are going on behind the scenes, I'm not entirely sure if I actually want the merger to go go through at this point. Um, I just think that the golf establishment and the PG Tour has done so much, so many, <laughs> so many negative things. I think they've lied in the media. I think that they have pushed the narratives in the media that are not true. I think that they still continue to do this. I still think that they have not learned any lessons over the last couple of years. Um, and I think that they, in a lot of ways, think that they could keep getting away with uh, the things that they're continuing to do. And I'm not going to get into the details because I don't want this to be a three-hour podcast. So, um, again, we'll have to see how things play out. I still think that it probably will, uh, the merger will probably go through its uh, at some point in the next few months. Uh, but we will have to see. So, Nuco, uh, I've talked a little bit about the assets that all of the uh, various entities are putting in the, the middle of the table. Now, when you have a for-profit entity, I think that it's really important what they're uh, they're doing, and I've I've been kind of tipped uh, tipped off to the uh, tip, tipped off to this, um, and it also is the only thing that makes sense. I mean, really, when you think about it and break it down, <clears throat> when you have a for-profit um, entity, how are you going to structure it? 
Um, I think that you wind up taking all of these assets that you've accumulated between the, these three entities. You start lifting out the things that are the most valuable parts of each of those asset groups. So, for example, uh, you know, Live Golf. I think it's very, very clear the most valuable assets they have are the players that, that they have contracted. And then also, there's really three events that like come to uh, my mind as the ones that are really the most interesting, the ones that are uh, the best attended, the ones that, uh, you know, the host venue has actually paid them to. I mean, the host venue and the actual government um, government body has actually paid uh, Live Golf to host these events for X amount of years. Uh, the three that sort of stand out to me at this particular point are, are obviously Live Golf Adelaide, uh, Live Golf um, Andalusia, which is the Valderrama tournament in Spain. Um, and then the third one get, gets a little bit tricky. I think it's probably either going to be Singapore or Hong Kong. And the reason why I talk about those two is because those two are long-term contracts where those two places have contracted Live Golf and paid them tens of millions of dollars to host events um, in that particular, uh, 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 for those particular events. So those are really valuable assets, I think, for Live. I think that you're taking those and you're sort of putting that in the middle of the pot. You're also taking your most valuable asset, which is the player contracts. And you're putting that in the pot where you're able to say, okay, you know, we're going to guarantee that these players are going to play in this sort of for-profit entity. Uh, So that, that's sort of one, one example of, of sort of the, you know, assets that Liv is putting in. And and then people are going to joke about how, you know, Liv doesn't, uh, the assets aren't that that valuable, but it's like, look, when when you spent uh, you know two, three, four billion dollars and sort of invested that in all of these great players that people around the world want to see, trust me, that has value. You don't need to be a rocket science rocket scientist to figure that that out. That one hundred percent has value. I think that the teams also have value. Uh, you know, um. The teams are sort of an, another sort of story that I don't know if I'm, I'm going to have time to sort of get into today, but eventually I do think the teams are actually going to be where a lot of the inherent value and sort of equity to the top players is going to lie. Uh, so again, uh, just keeping things short, I'm pushing all of those into the middle of the table. Those are I'm lifting those out. I'm putting my chips in the table to say, okay, live golf, piff. These are my uh, most valuable assets that I'm bringing to the table. And I'm also bringing a war chest full of money. But that's that's um, another story. too. <laughs> so we got all that. Then the PJ Tour. Now it's, it's like I'm thinking about, OK, the PJ Tour. Uh, what's the most valuable assets that, that we have? Uh, we, we can't guarantee that players are going to show up at these events. Now, I think one of the reasons why this merger is taking longer 
than it uh, probably should is because this is something that they have to figure out. They have to figure out a way to guarantee that all of the top players on the PJ Tour are going to be part of this umbrella new co series of events. So, and I'll get into sort of what that series is going to look like after I sort of talk about all the various asset groups. So the PJ tour biggest assets are their legacy events. These events that carry a lot of inherent value. They have a very strong identity. They have a history. They have very, very strong sponsorship. They have, you know, very strong sort of TV and media rights. Now, this is certainly carries a lot of value to it. Has it been devalued a little bit with all of the players that have gone to live? I mean, you could say that, but you could also tomorrow, the the PJ Tour could say, look, we're lifting all bans on the players that went to live. We're going to invite a few of those uh, to play in certain uh, PJ Tour events. And then, boom, like the value is, if it went down a little bit, is right back to where it should be. So I think what's going to happen is that they are taking the most valuable PJ Tour events. So we're, we're talking, I, I sort of listed a few that, that I thought were pretty good candidates for this. The Players' Championship obviously carries a lot of value to it. Um, I mean, what the actual valuation of, of that is. And I can, you know, I've uh, sort of tapped into, again, the private equity world and sort of gotten a little bit more information about how, uh, what valuation we're actually talking about if we are going to take these um, events and sort of spin them off into various franchises. So again, obviously PG tour does not have the option uh, like an NFL or NBA where you have these various teams, you have these various franchises that carry a lot of value to them and they're owned by very, very wealth, wealthy people and families and such. <clears throat> What you do have are you have these particular events, these particular golf tournaments that are tied to very specific locales, specific regions. Um, And I think that there are people that would love to own these events. Perfect example, talking about the Players' Championship. I've heard that it seems like the players, if you were to sort of franchise that out, sort of what would the value of that franchise be? You know, I've uh, heard various uh, various estimates that the players itself carries about a $1 billion valuation. Um, If you were to have a group of people, uh, ownership group, basically take on that tournament and sort of make it a franchise and... Look, the Players Championship is a very, very important event. It's, it's been a very, it's got a lot, a lot of legacy and tradition to it. It's always been one of the biggest events of the PJ Tour season. It's where the PJ Tour's headquarters is. It's got a very strong identity, very strong ties to the Jacksonville, Florida area. It carries a lot of value. It's very well, extremely well attended. I think that um, viewership is pretty good. I mean, they get usually probably 3 million viewers, uh, maybe maybe four on a good year. Like, those are pretty strong numbers. So I think that that has a certain value to it. 
uh, one of the, and on the sort of converse, one of the other events that uh, has kind of fallen on harder times the last probably 10 years, but it still has a very strong brand. It still has a very strong identity. Um, even though the sponsor recently, 40 plus year sponsor re- recently left. And that's the old Honda classic that's held in uh, Palm Beach Gardens. Now, obviously, Palm Beach Gardens uh, and Palm Beach in uh, in general, huge, huge um, hotbed of golf. I think that that tournament has very strong identity tied to that golf course, PJ National. I think it's also very, very well uh, well attended. I've heard that, you know, over the uh, course of a week, they get like 200,000 people appending, uh, attending that, that particular event. Uh, the field hasn't been that strong the last 10 years. I remember Tiger used to play, Rory used to play every year. It hasn't really been the case the last few years. Um, again, it sort of goes into all of a sudden you realize the value of these particular events. A lot of it is tied into the players that actually play in these events. So again, if you're able to lift out this particular event, the old Honda classic that's now being called, I believe the cognizant classic, because that's the new sponsor that they brought in. We'll, we'll see how the, how that sort of switch switches out. I've already, I've already said that they've got to figure something out with these names. And especially when it comes to this for-profit entity, they've got to figure out a way so that every single event has an identity. So they're not flipping names every few years. Like it's got to be, you know, oh, this event is uh, at PJ National. It's the old Honda Classic. It's always on this course at PJ National in Palm Beach. Um, I know all of the uh, sort of top golfers <clears throat> in the world, whether they play on Live or the PJ Tour, DP World Tour, wherever, they're all going to be playing in this particular tournament. You've got to figure out a way to give that tournament more of a stronger identity. Now, that particular event's not going to have the same value as the players that already has a very strong identity. It's a very uh, important tournament, very strong brand, very strong sponsors. Obviously, Honda Classic, Cognizant Classic is a little weaker there. Um, I've heard that the valuation of the Honda Classic, probably about $100 million, probably maybe a little more than that. Again, this is just a number to sort of give you guys food for thought. I'm not saying that's exactly how much it's worth. This is, these are just numbers that I've gotten from various sources over the course of the last, you know, year's time. So, and then you have between the players and the Honda, you've got a bunch of other events in there that, their valuation is probably in between that. You've got a tournament like the Waste Management Phoenix Open, which is the best attended golf tournament probably in the world. They get six or 700,000 uh, uh, people. They've got the stadium hall. They got all of that stuff. It's a legacy event that's been around for like 90 years. Everybody knows the uh, Phoenix Open. A lot of people don't know that it wasn't that long ago that it wasn't called the Waste Management Phoenix Open. Like they've relatively new sponsor used to be called like the FBR Open. And again, this is another tournament that's had very, uh, I think that they've gotten a stronger brand to sort of sponsor it now where everybody knows what the Waste Management Phoenix Open is. Like it has a very strong identity. 
what happens if waste management decides to like, you know what, we don't want to sponsor this anymore. All of a sudden becomes another FBR open. It becomes, you know, whatever company wants to come in and, sort of sponsor it maybe it's the the aramco phoenix open <laughs> like that's certainly something that it could be i think we need to get rid of that that model if these again this is something that i'm going to continue to hammer home if we want this to be for profit every single one of these events that carries value to it and you want to see the value of this event go up over time it's very important every single event needs to have an identity I think the Phoenix Open has a very strong identity now. You have to protect this uh, this identity going into the future. So, and then again, there, there's other uh, sort of tournaments you can sort of <clears throat> spin off and sort of franchise them as well. A couple others that I've thought of: um, Arnold Palmer in- Invitational at Bay Hill, very strong brand tied to Arnold Palmer in the Orlando area. Again, it's another really well attended event. Orlando, Florida is a very sort of important hotbed of golf. I think that Harry that uh, carries a lot of weight to it. The memorial tied to Jack Nicholas. Again, it's not called the MasterCard Memorial. It's called the Memorial Tournament. Like it's got a very specific identity, a very specific brand. When you know, when you hear the memorial, you know what that tournament is. You know where it's going to be. You know, Jack Nicholas is going to be waiting on 18, waiting to congratulate the, the winner. That tournament certainly carries value to it. No question, uh, question about it. Uh, then you start getting into other ones like the Travelers, I think, is one that could have some uh, value to it. You've got the old Wells Fargo, which is now losing Wells Fargo. Um, as a sponsor, uh, that's in Charlotte, North Carolina. It's very well attended. Uh, doesn't necessarily have the same branding as those, those other ones. I'm not sure. Uh, I, I think it's, it's one that's kind of like a, a potential sort of put into this, uh, particular pot, especially because again, I think it's a good market. Charlotte also sort of has a rep, reputation for sort of turning out for professional golf. Um, and I think that it's a, it's an event that sort of has a certain identity and a certain certain brand, maybe not as high as some of those others. Uh, then you have uh, something like the Genesis, uh, Genesis Invitational at Riviera. Used to be called the old LA Open. It's where Tiger made his professional debut in 1992. It's got a lot of legacy to it. Obviously, the LA Open goes back very, very, very long time. Like when we're we're talking basically a hundred years. Now, here's the thing people don't really understand about Riviera is that uh, the infrastructure of that particular event. And look, I have been to the LA Open many, many times over the years. It's not necessarily the best attended events on the PGA Tour. It's not even close. Um, I think that uh, when Tiger took it over and he started playing in that event more, because there was a time where he was not playing in this event at all. Going back to the uh, 2000s, like he was skipping it. So, you know, um, and, and when he didn't play, like the attendance was nowhere near. They were not getting like 200,000 people over the course of a um, of a week. They were getting... 
I mean, probably closer. It was probably under 50,000 for the week, if I had to guess, if I had to ballpark it, which is not bad. I think that it's, again, it's a great course. I think that it does have a certain brand to it. The course is a really important course. It's a great legacy course that a lot of players love. Um, it carries value, no question about it. It's got a, a fairly strong sponsor. I think Genesis is a decent sponsor. Uh, uh, Hyundai is sort of a longtime PJ Tour sponsor. Is sort of uh, a sponsor of various events. I think Genesis, that particular brand, is sponsoring multiple PJ Tour events. They're they're a strong sponsor, no question uh, question about it. Uh, now does that particular event carry the value of some, some of the others? I'm not sure. Again, uh, food for thought. I just gave you seven, eight events that they could potentially lift out of the PJ tour. These are very, very important assets that we're bringing to the, the table. You can sort of add up the value of that. It's probably a couple billion dollars, maybe $3 billion. You're going to franchise off each one of those tournaments you're going to have uh, various folks, whether they be uh, folks that are part of strategic sports group, which is a private equity company that's come in to, you know, contribute three plus billion dollars to this new co company umbrella corporate uh, corporation. They could easily own uh, several of these events, maybe all of these events, um, and basically have ownership groups that actually own these events that carry value that they want to see increase in value over time. So, <clears throat> so we talked about, and again, the PJ tour and, uh, the DP world tour, European tour, very similar model. European tours got some other legacy of events to probably carry a fair amount of value, I think Wentworth BMW Championship, very important legacy event on that tour. It's been very well attended. It's got great sponsorship. Usually has a pretty strong field. It's got an identity, definitely a strong identity. Scottish Open again, sponsored by Genesis. Um, you know that might be one that they sort of bring in and sort of push to the table. You got the Dubai Desert Classic again. I talked about that a little bit. It's got legacy now. Uh, Rory's one of the few times Tiger's one of the few times, like a lot of big names have won it. Uh, I think it's got identity. I think it's got value. Um, uh, that part of the world obviously is the middle East is becoming a very, very important part of the sort of golf world, professional golf world. And I think that it's going to continue to be that way. Uh, Dubai being a very important, uh, city in that as well as, uh, Saudi also being an important, Important contributor, obviously. <clears throat> so, ag- again, we're taking all of these assets and we're like, okay, European Tour, what do you have? What do you want to contribute? PJ Tour, what do you have? What are you going to contribute? Live Golf, PIF, what do you got? What are you going to contribute? All these things, you're taking these events, you're taking all of this, all of these assets. This is what you're creating to create new co slash umbrella corporation and sort of this elevated series of events that, again, like I said previously, we only had, especially the last couple of years, 
the majors are the only four tournaments where you're guaranteed. You're not even guaranteed any anymore if the majors don't don't sort of step it up. Mm-hmm. You're basically getting the majority of the top players playing in those events. The only way that this is going to be more profitable into the future is that you have to create. You have to use this new code to create all these other events that maybe they're not quite at the level of the majors, but they're pretty damn close where you're guaranteed to get various fields of various sizes playing in all of these events that I've already mentioned that are now part of this umbrella corporation where they all carry their own inherent value. They are all franchised where the owners of each one of those tournaments now uh, is responsible for increasing the value of those tournaments over the course of time. Again, I think the ways that you get there are one, everything has to have an extremely strong identity. It's critical to this. Everything has to have a, a brand, just like the masters has an important brand. The U S open has an important brand. The PJ championship has a brand open championship has a brand. Maybe you're creating this series of, let's say, 12 events. Let's just sort of net out at 12 where so now instead of uh, just having the four majors, you've also got these 12 events where you're guaranteed to get all of the top players in there that now have very strong identities that are tied to specific regions. They're not necessarily tied to sponsors, Because that sponsorship name where you're flipping every few years, you're just not really creating a strong identity to those tournaments anymore. You're just not. I'm not saying those sponsors shouldn't still be involved. They absolutely should. I think that that's obviously another really strong revenue stream. It's something you want to keep injecting into this sort of for-profit model. Because, again, if you're for-profit, you want as many sponsors as possible. Except, again, you have to do it in a very, very smart way where you are encouraging more people to watch. You are creating a more compelling uh, TV product where you can have this sort of global series of events of 12 events that I've already talked about sort of various places where this is tied to is not just tied to the United States. It's tied to Australia. It's tied to uh, continental Europe. It's tied to the UK. It's tied to Asia. And maybe you you want to squeeze in. Maybe there's a little bit of flexibility where you can move some of these events to um, other parts of the world that really want it. Certainly another option. Uh, but again, I think that it's critical that each one of these things have an identity to it. Um, and I think that's going to be critical to the success of this this going forward. Um, and that's really where, like, a lot of people are saying, oh, you're, you're just rebooting the World Golf Championships. But you're not, because one, when they did have the World Golf Championships uh, throughout the world, it was very rare, again, that they were getting all the best, best players. You know, I remember Tiger sitting out a lot of those events. I remember a lot of the big names not going because they didn't want to compromise their schedules on the PJ Tour and all that other stuff. Because, again, the biggest weakness to that whole model, whether it be the World Golf Championships or the PJ Tour, it was not a league. It was not 
all it was was a very vague organization that wasn't really organized, let's be honest, um, where you're not guaranteed to get the best players. That's what you have to move towards. You got to build this thing so that you're guaranteed to get all the players that everybody wants to see, not just four times a year. You bump that that up to like 16 times a year. So that sort of gives you a little bit of an idea when it comes to Nuco and sort of having it be a for-profit company. There's a lot of stuff, a lot of micro stuff in there that we could sort of, you know, haggle on. But I really want to give you that sort of macro view of what in the world does a for-profit entity look like um, in this particular case? Again, just to summarize, you're taking the most valuable assets of all the people that are involved. You are elevating the uh, things that carry the most value of each of those, and you're milking that for all that it's worth, and you're increasing the value of that over time. It's the only way this is going to work. It's really the only way that I can see that we're guaranteed to grow golf and grow this umbrella core new co into the future. You know what? I absolutely love golf. I think about it all the time. I practice all the time. I am fascinated by the whole industry, the whole game and everything that goes on. But the trouble is I'm absolutely packed out and busy at work. I've got a little girl. Everything is just too much to try and stay on top of, which is why I'm always looking for easier and quicker ways to stay up to date with the sport that I love. And that is why I recommend that you do what I do, which is subscribe to the only newsletter recap that you need from the world of golf. That is teatimes.pub. That's teatimes.pub. It's a free newsletter. It lands every single week and it's highly, highly recommended. Go and check it out now and let us know what you think. Teatimes.pub. So now that we've talked about Nuco, let's talk a little bit about the economics of golf and sort of what, where things need to go into the future. And again, we've talked a little bit about, we've got these various sort of competing priorities. We've got the rank and file players that want one thing. We've got the star players that want something else. Now we've got the two primary investors, two primary benefactors that are coming into professional golf, the Saudi PIF. And we also have a strategic sports group, which is sort of a conglomerate of very wealthy folks that are mostly based here in the U S that are, you know, very wealthy folks that have, I think the last time I saw, I think the combined net worth of these folks was something like $80 billion or something like that. Certainly nothing to sort of, uh, <laughs> uh, nothing to take lightly. Um, except when you also have the uh, Saudi PIF that's, uh, worth, you know, uh, closer to 800 billion. That's cer- certainly something you don't want to take, take light, lightly either. So you've got these competing priorities, competing entities, uh, strategic sports group. Uh, the last number that I heard, they are probably going to be injecting this NUCO with roughly anywhere between 3 billion and $3.5 billion. So then you also have the Saudi PIF. That's probably going to commit 
you know, probably about the same amount of uh, same amount of value, the, the same amount of money into this uh, particular <clears throat> org- organization. So I could see that being kind of a 50-50 split. Certainly seems fair. Um, and then on top of that, obviously, you've got so you've got the investors and the owners now. And again, I'm going to draw these these parallels between the sort of new way that golf looks and sort of how professional sports, especially here in the U.S., because that's what uh, what I know, uh, how that looks uh, here uh, here in the U.S. So you've got your ownership groups and your investors. They're basically carrying 50 percent of the value of all this. Then. The uh, the other fifty percent, we're really talking about. We're talking about again the rank and file players, which is the you know four hundred or so plus players that aren't the top you know players that that really drive interests and stuff like that. But they're very important to the ecosystem, sort of various sort of scales within that. And then you have the star players, the ones that actually drive interests. Your Phil Mickelsons, your Tigers, your John Roms, your Rory McIlroys, Dustin Johnson, Brooks Kepka, Bryson DeChambeau, all those guys that, you know, let, let's be honest, those guys probably carry 15 to 20 times the value of the of certain of sort of the average rank and file player. Like that's kind of where I think things net out. Uh, you know, those guys carry a lot of value and honestly, you could probably take the top 15 to 20 of those players. And we could sort of haggle over who those, those names are. Again, I don't want this to be a three hour podcast, so I'm not really going to go into detail, but you could talk about all those guys, like those 15 to 20 probably carry as much value or maybe even more value than the rest of the other players on the, the PJ tour and live and, um, you know, the Europe European tour combined. So, um, again, because those two groups are so completely different. It's very hard to put them all under the same category. I just don't think you can do that. So what do I think needs to happen is the fact that obviously we've got this uh, 50% ownership. Uh, Saudi PIF, strategic sports group, uh, 50% talent. We're talking the uh, superstar star players and we're talking rank and file players. Uh, 50-50 split, 25% PIF, 25% strategic uh, sports group, 25% to the uh, top star players, 15 to 20, and then 25% to uh, the rank and file players. Now, I'm not strictly talking about equity here. I need to be abundantly clear on this. The way this is sort of broken down in, let's just use the NBA because it's the one that I know best and it's something that I've studied the um, economics of the NBA for, gosh, probably 30 years at this point, ever since I was in grade school. It's just crazy when I think about that. Uh, anyway, uh, it, 
uh, it hasn't always been 50-50. It's been like, you know, 57-43, 57% player, uh, players, 43% owners. For argument's sake, we're just going to make, make it 50-50. And basically what it is, is uh, you're taking, you know, the overall pie of the economics of the NBA. Let's say it's $10 billion. You are always promising that the way that salaries are structured in uh, that particular league, the players are always going to be entitled to 50% of that. So if the revenue goes up, players are going to make out like bandits. If it stays flat, they're still going to do great, but it basically incentivizes, uh, it incentivizes everyone that that North star is always going to be, we want to grow this thing because it's going to be the path so that all of us get the maximum amount of revenue. Now, obviously, you know, golf is a little bit more complicated, which is why we don't just have the 50, 50 split between a team ownership and the players. We have sort of multiple ownership groups. And then we have these two very, very, specific groups of players. One of the things where I think you can balance this out um, is, again, using U.S. sports as an example, uh, you can can certainly figure this out using prize money as it currently stands on the PJ Tour um, and Live and the Deep Deeper World Tour. You could. Um, I think we need to move away from prize money for a variety of reasons, because one, I just think it's <sighs> there's been so much talk about money in professional golf the last couple of years. So I know that a lot of people are tired of it. No question. Um, and honestly, like, I just want to know that players are being fairly compensated. Like, I don't really care what they make exactly. I just want to know that um, everybody's happy with what they're getting. Um, and there's this inherent uh, sort of push and pull. There's a balance. There's checks and balances to make sure uh, that all players are being compensated the way that they, they should should be. Um, and everyone is incentivized uh, to grow this thing, because if it grows, then everybody's going to uh, going to make make out, you know, better than they were. Now, under this model, uh, again, you can keep prize money, but I do think that we should probably move to a salary model where you have structured salaries, you have, you know, top salaries for the, the you know, the, the more important players, the bigger players, star players, sort of lesser salaries for, you know, rookies and things like that. And there, there's sort of a sliding scale within there. Cer- certainly possible. Uh, but I do think that the teams are really where you have the most amount of growth uh, potential where expanding it. Look, I know when I start talking about teams in, uh, in golf, certain people, their eyes sort of glow, <laughs> glaze over because it's so new and it's so people don't fully understand it and they start thinking about it only in terms of like live golf and like the team specifically at live. What I'm talking about when I talk about teams is expanding on that sort of live golf model where you have these sort of four player teams. You know, currently we've got, you know, 12 to 13 teams. 
stay tuned for that. Might be more. Uh, um, uh, sort of a teaser. Um, so I think you could potentially have a situation where you have way more uh, players on these teams and they're not only live golf teams like you. Let's say, for example, we have again, if we want these sort of uh, top 15 to 20 players to all have uh, to all have their own teams, you could have a situation. And I wrote an article on this. I guess it was about a month ago, sort of talking about how we could potentially do that. I definitely highly recommend everybody reads it. If you go to my Twitter, you go to my Medium profile, it'll be uh, you know talking about the pro golf landscape in 2028 um, if I sort of ran professional golf. So um, I think you can have a situation where you have, let, let's say, Rory McIlroy own one of these teams. Where, you know, look, Rory's kind of committed to playing in most, mostly in PJ Tour events. He'll be playing in the Global Series. He'll probably be playing in, you know, two or three live events, probably, maybe. Um, except he doesn't necessarily have to play in those live events. He could have a team where he, he, uh, he designates four players on his team that are going to play in uh, the live uh, invitational series. Uh, the Live Golf League, where depending on their performance in that league, sort of how well they do, they're bringing in money and they're contributing that to the team to sort of increase the overall value of these teams where previously you might have had this situation where you had all these sort of sponsors sort of putting in money in certain events. That is that really the best way for them to sort of increase their uh, brand appeal. I don't know if it is like this sort of commercial model where you have these big companies that are paying for commercial time. I know personally, there's been so many commercials in professional golf that when I see a company that has the same commercial and they're running over and over again, every hour during these PJ tour events, like I actually start to have a negative view of that company. So I don't know if those commercials are necessarily the best way for them to get the most amount of value out of sponsoring professional golf. I think that there's other more creative ways. And I think one of those ways is instead of funneling that money into the TV, you funnel that money into the teams where those companies now these sort of traditional golf sponsors that have been in, involved in uh, golf for uh, for decades or some of some of the newer ones as well. They're now uh, sort of funneling money into the teams where, you know, you have a particular team sponsored by BMW. You have a team sponsored by Rolex. You have a team sponsored by Callaway. All of these other things, TaylorMade maybe too. Um, you know, and those teams, just like the sort of F1 model that we have, where you have multiple sponsors, you've got like Aramco, you have all these other, you know, comp- uh, companies sponsor, you, you have Red Bull, you have, you know, all these other uh, car manufacturers and like tires and like all these things that are involved in like auto racing, they're sponsoring teams. You could potentially have that in golf now, where you have these teams that, and yes, they're going to be competing um, at live. However, they're also going to have members of the uh, teams that are competing in sort of PJ tour events, 
Um, and they're also competing in this global series that, again, if you are um, increasing the value of that global series, you're getting more people to watch those events. Those events become the most important events of the entire calendar year in golf. Those are the ones that get the most amount of eyeballs. Those become these near majors that like the ratings are probably going to be like maybe not at like master's level, but they're going to be at that sort of player's championship level, maybe U.S. Open, PJ Championship, like in that range. That's where you could potentially really start to uh, sort of amplify the <clears> – <throat> the sponsors where they're starting to get more value sponsoring these teams than they are in the sort of old uh, traditional commercial model. Again, this is a huge macro level shift that I'm saying could happen. Do I think it's going to happen? I think it will. The reason why, again, I think that we have to start thinking about this um, everybody out there, you've got to stop thinking about golf how it was 10 years ago. It's never going to be like that again, I promise you. We're moving into a brand new world of professional golf. The teams are always going to be around. There's no question about it. Will it look different? Will live potentially look different? Will there be less live events? Like instead of 14, could I see there being 10? Sure. I think that the PJ Tour is going to have less events. Again, because in this franchise model... It's sort of inevitable that if you have too many events, it lessens the value of each one of those franchises. So you have to start picking some out. You, you got to start contracting. It's the only way that's going to really sort of drive interest where instead of <clears throat> you know having way too many events and conflicting events and all that other stuff, like you're really starting to put together a golf schedule that makes more sense. You're starting to put together a golf schedule that's going to garner more attention. You're going to start putting together a golf s- schedule that's got all the best players and more of the, the events. This is the only way to drive this thing forward. I'm very, very convinced of that. So, <clears throat> and again, the amount of players playing it at each one of these events is sort of a, a, a story for another day. It's a micro level thing. Really, the intention of this is to get everybody thinking about how this could be. Um, into the future because uh, my number one complaint about professional golf, and I've tweeted about this constantly over the last year, um, has been that we've been totally stuck in this sort of old professional golf model that sort of started in the mid to late 1960s that is like totally ignoring that we're moving into a world uh, that looks totally different than it did in 1968. Um, I think that we are seeing a little bit of decentralization in terms of funding, in terms of sponsors, in terms of general interest in other parts of the world um, outside of the United States. And to me, again, it's the only way that you're going to grow, grow, uh, grow golf. And I think that I have, uh, if I haven't made this point in this podcast, like I'm failing at my job because I feel like I've said this probably 20 times. The only way that you're going to grow golf is you have to expand out from what it is now. Like this old model that we've had is not the path forward because let's be honest, after Tiger Woods started uh, started going downhill and sort of playing less 
events, starting to have his um, injuries. He had his car accident, all that other stuff. He's not going to play in that many events going forward. He's just not. And everybody needs to like let that sink in that Tiger's not going to be around that much longer. He really isn't. Um, I would love to still see him play in a few events here, here and there, but that shouldn't be the expectation at all. We've got to figure out a better way to push this thing into the future that's going to drive interest. What I've just proposed to you with this sort of restructuring of golf, the restructuring of the calendar, the restructuring of how everything works, I think that's really the path forward to make golf as big as it it could be on sort of a global scale where you have this global series of events, including the majors at the very, very top. You still have the PJ tour running independently. You have live golf running independently. You have the DP world tour running independently. And look, I don't think there's any question. There's going to be contraction. There's going to be events that get scrapped. I think that's the best thing for the health of the game. And I think that that needs to happen. Um, And you're still going to have, so you've got these sort of 16 events, you know, uh, that are the uh, things that the entire golf world revolves around. Um, And you also have like these players that are mostly playing in this global series. You're still going to have a lot of those guys playing in the, additional seven live events there are uh, where that that's going to they're going to play in roughly, you know, 23, 24 events. I think that that's fair. Maybe some of the older players, there might be something you you could do for any player over, I don't know, 35 to 40. Um, Maybe they aren't playing in quite as many events. Maybe there's a handful of global series that they don't have to have to play in. These are things that can be work, worked out uh, for sure. So I think that you're looking at a world where every player that wants to play in uh, as many events as possible, they're going to be playing in rough, roughly 24 events, uh, 16 in the global series. Um, and then you've got like some of these guys like, like Rory probably going to play like, you know, six additional PJ tour events maybe two others sort of scattered throughout the world, maybe Europe, European tour events that aren't part of the global series. I could certainly see that. Um, and I think we just need to open this thing up so that every event that we have, is, uh, particularly as part of the global series, uh, those events are going to be the highlights of the year. They're going to get the most amount of world ranking points, which is going to incentivize players to play in as many of those as they uh, can. But I do think that the way forward is that you've got to contract every player to make sure they're playing in every single one of those events. Uh, Can that happen? I think that it can. I think that, again, if you're guaranteeing the trade-off is that, yes, these players have been mostly independent contractors uh, or for however long professional golf has been going on. I think that that's got to change um, if this is going to be, uh, if we want to make golf as big as it can be, we've got to turn this into a league structure. We've got to start guaranteeing that these players are playing in as many events as possible, uh, especially in this global series and the majors. And again, I think it's the only path forward. It's the only path that makes sense. We're going to start franchising each one of these events. 
they're going to turn into their own sort of stops. It's going to be kind of like F1 where everything, um, all of these potential, these sort of uh, global series of events, they become the center, just like F1 events in Singapore and Vegas and Austin and Miami become these events that are like really, really important to just the entire ecosystem. Like that's what I think we're sort of moving towards. And I think it's the only way that we're really going to drive interest. So uh, I'm going to stop there because I feel like I've been going now for a little over an hour. That's been a lot to sort of take in. You know, I may want to do something sort of add on to this because obviously things are continuing to change. We just had the deadline move back uh, for the uh, merger to late May, uh, late March, um, early April. There's going to be a lot of other changes that sort of happen between now now and then. There's going to be more players that go over to live because we still have, you know, spots that need, need to be filled. I've been tipped off that there's going to be more PJ tour players that probably go. I don't know exactly when that's going to happen. I mean, look, the live season starts the beginning of February. Um, If last year was any indication, I expect it to sort of come down to the deadline again. So we're, we're looking at probably late January to sort of filling out the teams. I've already heard that the team rippers got uh, two players on the way that are currently PJ tour players. Um, and we've got a couple other tour players, whether they be on the European tour or the PJ tour that are going to fill in the other spots in addition to the guys that made it through the uh, promotions event. Uh, so we're looking at a really exciting next month, next few months. I think it's going to be really in- interesting to see how this stuff plays out. Um, I feel very confident that what I proposed with the sort of global series is going to be the path forward. Again, we'll have to see how this whole thing <laughs> plays out. We certainly are potentially looking at a world where the merger doesn't happen and then it's going to be complete chaos, uh, which I kind of want to see at this point if I'm rooting for anything. I used to root for the merger. Now it's like I, I'm kind of rooting for chaos again because I just uh, I'll leave you on this point. I feel like the golf establishment and the PG tour, they have a certain culture that they have built over the last several decades. And as much as I wanted that culture to change, it's very, very clear to me that it's not really going to change to the level that I want it to. Um, and the only solution might be blowing up the whole thing and starting over. Uh, do I think that that's likely? No, I still think that the most likely thing is the merger, you know, going through just again, like, like I've said on a few podcasts might be a little bit delayed at this point. I still think it's going to happen. Uh, is that what I'm rooting for? Not really. Um, I want live, <laughs> live golf to be the primary tour. I want more, uh, players from the PJ tour and the European tour to go over. Um, I want live golf to eventually become the premier golf league in the world. I think that that's best for the global golf ecosystem. Um, and I think that it's the only way to really change the overall culture of golf. So, um, and again, this is, this is my take on it. This is my personal feelings. I know my colleagues, uh, Mark and Ben feel differently. 
totally fine. But look, this is my solo podcast. Uh, this might be the only one. I don't know. We'll, we'll have to see. But um, I want to thank everybody for uh, tuning in. We've got some amazing things planned uh, going forward. We've got our first, you know, couple sponsors that have come on board recently, including Fair Play Exchange, which is um, um, unfortunately it's not really offered here in the United States, which kind of works out for me because I don't really bet. Um, at all. <laughs> um, and I live in the United, United States, but if I were, um, in the UK and Europe, I certainly would, uh, you know, sign up and, uh, see what it's all about. So I encourage all of my UK and European colleagues to sort of look into that. Uh, they're a great, uh, great partner. Uh, we're currently talking to a few other potential sponsors for 2024. Um, and Golf Lovers United is definitely looking at, attending a few professional golf events. I may even be attending a couple of PGA tour events. It's TBD at this point, but, uh, um, uh, conversations are currently going on. Um, and we'll have to see how things play out. So, um, again, thank you for listening to this. There'll be many, many more, much more information to come, uh, later on down the line, but hopefully this has given you guys plenty of food for thought for now. Um, and until, Next time, I will see you later. A big thank you to Jay, as always, at Pro Golf Critic, one of our co-hosts and, of course, our co-founder here at Golf Lovers United. What did you make of the episode? Anything that Jay does always splits the audience. There are people that like what he says. There are people that dislike what he says. And every opinion should be heard. So let us know at GLU Golf Club over on Twitter or let us know in the YouTube comments. My name's Mark at Golf Dad UK and I'll be back with Golf Lover UK Ben next week and of course Jay for a more up-to-date episode on everything from Rory's reparation talk to the future of men's pro golf in 2024 and beyond. And of course, we've got a wonderful interview coming up as well. So stick around for that. Tell your friends that they can enjoy over on YouTube or at glugc.com. And we'll see you on the next episode.